welcome Welcome, welcome to worship here at the well. If you have your Bibles, if you would please open them up to the book of Acts. We're continuing on in this series, uh, Sent, and we're going to be diving into Acts chapter 8 this morning. And before we get to our passage of Scripture, <clears throat> I, uh, I have a, a question and I, I need a little bit of input. Um, you don't need to shout, just really kind of nod or raise your hand if you uh, would agree with this statement that Americans love and cherish our comforts. Yeah, would you guys agree? with Americans love and cherish our comforts. You may not even realize it, but we truly are a pampered and a spoiled people here in America. I mean, we even make sure that our pets are pampered. Would you guys agree with that? Like, um, we, we do. Uh, and in fact, I was going to show you guys a video clip. Statistics came out just a few years ago uh, that more money was spent on pampering our pets than what churches gave to missions in the last 10 years. Uh, more, more money was spent on, on pampering our, our pets. Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that I, uh, I like to watch. I'm a people watcher, anybody else? Uh, my wife and I, uh, when we first got together, one of the uh, dates that we used to frequently go to was to sit inside of one of the largest malls in Tampa, Florida, where, uh, where we uh, met. And uh, we would sit in the center and we would just watch people and we would see their expressions. We oftentimes used to make up stories about what those people were walking through uh, because they would be frustrated or they would be angry and you could see it written all over people's faces as they were shopping. And I came to this conclusion that one of the fastest ways uh, to irritate someone or to find ourselves getting irate is to have someone mess with our level of comfort, to have somebody mess with it. And um, we all have a level of comfort that we try and live at. And if that level starts to drop below where we like it, uh, it becomes um, known in our mood, in the way that we begin to react and respond to people. Now, we look at the life of the early church and we soon discover that maintaining levels of comfort was not a high priority. None at all. Uh, what was a priority to them was the spreading of the gospel and the multiplication of disciples. So discipleship. I mean, the early church soon realized that in order for the gospel to spread, it was going to come at a great cost to them. I mean, that cost was so high, the church was not only openly opposed, but it was mercilessly persecuted by the religious leaders of that day. Now, I want you to look with me at verse number 1 in Acts chapter 8. And it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, who, who was just executed? Stephen. We looked at this last week, and Saul was there. They even said that they laid their coats at the feet of Saul. So Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now Paul, it says, was ravaging the church. I want you to picture with me for just a moment a wild animal ripping apart its prey. This is the reality of what was happening in the early church in this time period right here. Paul was separating families and he was seeking to shut the church down. Now, it was not a pretty scene, not at all. In the early church, instead of responding with fear and becoming paralyzed, they began to scatter. And in verse 1, they start to scatter from Jerusalem where they're at. And by the time we get to verse number four, they're starting to scatter everywhere. And the spread of the gospel was in full swing. And the church was now on the move in a greater way than what we've seen yet in the book of Acts in the first eight chapters. And the promise of Jesus, if we remember back to week number one of this series, Jesus gave a promise and it is now being fulfilled seven chapters later. 
If you would redirect your attention um, to the screens, it says this in Acts 1. Luke records Jesus saying, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, despite the persecution of the early church, or in, in some, um, some cases, people would say that because of or as a result of the persecution, the church was now on the move. Now, the first missionary journey is taking place, and no doubt the death of Stephen was the catalyst that really put these things into motion. I want us to remember something that was spoken last week, that Stephen did every single thing right. He did everything that God asked of him to do, and he still ended up dying for Christ. He died. And it's hard for us here in this culture to understand something like this, or, or why things happen like this. But what we know is that Stephen's blood going into the ground was a game changer for the early church. People's lives were impacted. They were changed. Not because Stephen's life was delivered from his persecution, but because he died. And sometimes in our stories of life, we find pain we find seasons of deep struggle. We find hard roads. We find that we're in the middle of fierce battles. And I want to remind us again this week that the sermons that we preach through our pain are so much louder than the sermons that we preach through our blessing. And so no matter where you find yourself at this morning, Stephen reminds all of us that even in our suffering, our life is still to be pointing people to Jesus. I, I believe that it was Stephen's faithful example that spurred on the church, and that's why they scattered. I mean, that scattering was intentional. It was purposeful. And I still believe that God is still to this day scattering his church and his people all over the place. But the question for us this morning, one that every single one of us in this room online and who will listen to this sermon later has to answer is, do we see this right here as our purpose? Do we see Ionia as our mission? Do we see our workplaces and our, our neighborhoods as the reason why God has planted us right here to bear fruit and point people to Jesus? Do we see that? It was nearly 13 years ago that, um, that my family was called by God to leave here in Ionia and go uh, back to Tampa, Florida. And when God first began to stir in us to, to leave for ministry, uh, neither one of us wanted to go. Uh, for those of you who know our testimony uh, we left Florida. There was a lot of bad things that had occurred. We had lost a child. Our, our first child died we had to bury him. Um, it was awful. It was an experience that we never really wanted to have. And God was like, you're, go you're going back. We're, I want you to go back. And we fought tooth and nail, but God was making it very difficult for us to stay here in Ionia. He made it very difficult. And, and we had to learn and relearn and relearn and relearn what it meant to die to ourselves every single day. Moment by moment by moment did we have to do that. We had to get our hearts right over and over and over again, it seemed like, through this process. But what happened, what happened is that we began to see that God scattered us 1,275 miles away so that he could plant us, so that we would die to ourselves every day and start producing fruit that would in turn point people to Jesus Christ. And he gave us a fruitful ministry for nearly 10 years before he said, okay, I'm stirring in you to leave. I'm stirring in you to go somewhere else. And it, it was not until that time that I began to understand a portion of scripture that he kept bringing to us over and over and over and over again for 10 years. He kept bringing this passage of scripture and I couldn't understand what he was doing, and as I began to see, the Holy Spirit illuminated something for me, 
And it's this, I want you to draw your attention to the screen. In the Gospel of John, it is recorded that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servants also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The early church, Stephen, the apostles, the disciples, every Christian has to come to the conclusion that just as a seed will never become a plant unless it dies, there must be a dying to self in your life before there can ever be a resurrection power and a fruitfulness that happens in you. There has to be a dying to self. And when that happens, when that takes hold, uh, God does amazing things. And I want us to look at what God does when a dying to self occurs. So look with me at verse number five. And it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And I want you to notice verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Talking about witchcraft here. For those of you who are like, practice magic, what do you mean? practice magic or witchcraft in the city. And he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was someone great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great in verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, on any of them, uh, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." In verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, the first thing I want us to note here is that there was a radical transformation that occurred here in the city when the gospel was brought to the Samaritans by Philip. There's a radical transformation. The verse tells us in, in 8 that the city had much joy. Much joy was there. The city meaning that it was blessed by the faithful preaching of the gospel as people's lives were transformed and changed for the glory of God. This passage, though, church, gives us a pattern for which we are to reach our city. And yet so many people live lies, uh, live, live lives under misconceptions about evangelism. Throughout my time in ministry, I have heard so many people say, evangelism is just the way that I live my life. Or evangelism is just inviting somebody to church. Like, that's just evangelism. 
And yet these misconceptions could be addressed by just looking at what the Bible says about evangelism and looking at the life of Christ and how he evangelized lost people. And so for those of you who are note takers, I want you to write down this definition of evangelism. It is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed. To bring joy. So that would be, it is, it is the well church intentionally living in Ionia to bring joy to Ionia through word and deed. That's what evangelism is. And Luke makes the point here to us in the text that when the gospel left Jerusalem, the apostles were not the ones that were carrying it. When the, when the gospel began to expand, it was carried in the mouths of ordinary people. Everyday people, like you and I. And I'm afraid that I'm going to make this point so much in this series that you're going to get sick of it, but it is a theme in the book of Acts that the church grows not by the preaching of a few anointed apostles, but when every believer who is spirit-filled testifies to the gospel in the streets. That's what it is, church. For you and for me, and unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately, my role as a pastor, my primary role as your pastor, is to equip you to do the work of ministry. That's what Paul said in the, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. It means that you receive teaching and training and then you are sent out from here to go do the work of ministry outside of these four walls. I was talking recently to our church board and was, was talking about this very thing. We've spent two and a half years since I have been here, church, breaking down all of the misconceptions and the preconceived notions about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And we've built a stable foundation on the Word of God that we have begun to build upon. And every single thing that we do, every ministry activity, every event, every breakfast, every Bible study, every small group has been done intentionally to invest in you so that you are capable and able and equipped to do the work of ministry outside of here. As I said to you last week, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to share the hope that is inside of you and I'm not going to be present to do it for you. And so you have to be ready we have to be ready. And when you're equipped, when you've been taught, when you've been trained, when you've been released to do ministry, when that happens, when the church moves, the whole city is filled with joy. Radical transformation occurs in people's lives. Healing takes place. Bondage to addiction is broken off of people's lives. Marriages are restored. Wayward children come to the Lord. Because we've done exactly what the very heartbeat of God is, and that's reaching lost people with the truth. And so I've been asking myself and a few of our leaders over the last month of time, would our community even miss the well if we closed our doors? Would it even miss us? Would Ionia miss the well if we were no longer here? And in light of that context, would, 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 it, would they even know that the well brought joy to the community? And is that who we are? Are we joy bringers to Ionia because God loves our city and we need to show them this love in word and deed. Every single one, not just me, not just me and the leadership. No, every single one of us has to show God's love and grace and mercy and truth and forgiveness to the world around us. And guess what? God has called us to Ionia for such a time as this. There was a radical transformation that occurred here in the text. And you probably missed the second point, but there was also racial unification. Racial unification. 
It says that Philip went and preached in Samaria. Did you guys know that Philip was a Jewish man? Philip was a Jewish man, and obviously the people of Samaria, or they're, they're Samaritans, right? The, the people of Samaria. The Samaritans and the Jews have history. How many of you uh, know anything about the history of the Samaritans and the Jewish people? Anything at all? So the Samaritans and the Jews had a, a, a history of hatred and mistrust that existed between these two races for more than a thousand years prior to this text right here being written. A thousand years. Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. And Jews are really big into purity, like 100% pure. As in, Jews wouldn't even wear two pieces of clothing that were made from different types of material pure. That's how the Jewish people were. Much less would they accept a, a race of people that was mixed. Jews would not even sit on something that the Samaritans had touched. They would walk around Samaria adding a day or more to their trip just so that they wouldn't have to be in the same vicinity as Samaritans. All the while, the Samaritans were not the nicest people either. The Samaritans built their own temple, saying that theirs was the true temple, not the Jewish temple. And on a more serious note, the Samaritans often attacked Jewish pilgrims on their way through Jerusalem, carrying gifts to the temple. They robbed them. They beat them. As I look back over history, I cannot find a deeper racial divide that is larger than the Jews and the Samaritans. Not even today in our culture is there a deeper racial divide than this. There was a deep-seated hatred and an animosity. And here, Philip, a, a Jewish man, preaches to the Samaritans and God uses his words and his deeds to reach them. Church, perhaps the greatest display of God's power was not through Philip's miracle healings. It was through the lives that were radically transformed by the gospel. Because guess, guess what came? Out of that radical transformation, guess what came? Racial unity and harmony. That's what came. And the, the Samaritans received the very message and what society, write this down if you're a note taker, what society cannot accomplish in trying to achieve racial harmony, the gospel does. The gospel achieves it in every form and facet. The gospel creates unity and it mends racial divides. I uh, was reading an article just recently by a well-known sociologist and this is what he said. He said, we know in America how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws that guarantee fairness. But what we haven't been able to do is to make races and cultures love and embrace each other. The gospel church of Jesus Christ breaks down the race barrier and it builds bridges of reconciliation, creating unity and harmony. And I'd like for you to get off your cell phones and stop writing for just a moment. I want you to look up here because this is so important for us. Because you're like, Pastor, why are you talking about this in a church that is predominantly white? That's why I'm talking about this. I say that racial unification should occur because it, it does in the Bible through the gospel. That does not mean that our culture or our heritage is not important and is somehow erased or irrelevant for us. But I will say this, that our very new nature founded in Jesus Christ far outweighs our culture and our heritage. Far outweighs because we are all one in Jesus Christ. I want you to direct your attention to the screens. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia and he said, For in Christ Jesus we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
He says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Neither is there slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all what? You are all what? One in whom? In Christ. We are all one in Christ. Paul was teaching that no race needed to think of themselves as lesser members of the family of God. All. All people. Do you guys remember what I used to say to you? What is the Greek meaning of the word all? All. It means everything. It encapsulates all things. All people who trust in Christ for salvation are full sons and daughters of God Almighty. And that means that they receive the same rights and privileges that come with that as the next person sitting on their left or their right. And so I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, if you are a child of God, you have all the rights and privileges. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now. If you are a child of God, you have all the rights and privileges as the next person. Paul assures, will you leave that verse up there for me? Paul assures believers that they have been fully united with everyone else who is in Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We are all one in Christ. Church, our earthly identifiers create no value distinction between us in our Father's eyes. None. Jews do not carry a higher rank than the Gentiles. Free people hold no higher honor than the slaves. Men are not superior to women. No race is a master race except for the human race created by God. Nor is there any ethnicity that is inferior than another. And it's important to note this morning that none of the teaching that we find in the scripture is based on our current climate here in this culture. None. Whatsoever. Paul was not standing before the church of Galatia addressing the Black Lives Matter movement. Paul was not standing in front of liberals or conservatives or some other political party that was there. It was a direct result of the gospel that Paul was saying what he did. It's not a statement about various roles that any Christian may be called to fill in their life or, or honor we may or may not be given in this life. It is a statement about our equality in the eyes of God and how we should learn to view one another. And since all Christians are in Christ, all of us are one. And so we see here in the text a radical transformation that leads to racial unification. But then it also brings us one final warning. Well, how can there be a warning when all of this good stuff is going on? People are getting saved. Cities are being flipped upside down and filled with joy. Racial unification is occurring. Well, I also want you to note that there's someone here in the text that has a rootless faith. A rootless faith. And I believe that the, the last half of this text is here to give us a warning that always goes with churches that are trying to grow spiritually and numerically. I really believe there's two warnings here for us as a church. They're not going to come to the screen, but I am going to give them to you. The first warning is that not everyone who believes in is baptized as a real disciple. Not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real disciple. Even with the best preaching, and I'm not even talking about myself, even with the best preaching, false conversions still happen. False conversions still happen. Verse 13 tells us that Simon believed, that he was baptized, and he even continued on in a discipleship relationship with Philip. He kept going. Anybody in here ever experienced that? 
in your life? You've walked with somebody for a while in the Christian life and then they were just gone. No longer in church, no longer around the things of God, no, no longer wanted to talk about God, no longer in prayer, no, nothing. Anybody, anybody walk through that? A lot of people, a lot of people get baptized. A lot of people go through discipleship, but they don't actually become disciples of Jesus Christ. Simon genuinely believed in the sense that he was persuaded that Jesus was the Christ. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. And it's a problem with most false converts. Simon believed in a Jesus and something else gospel. Simon believed in a Jesus and Simon's magic gospel. Simon believed in a, in a Jesus and Simon's agenda gospel. Simon believed in a Jesus and Simon's personal platform gospel. And a lot of people are like that. A lot of people, they have a Jesus and me conversion. In other words, I will follow Jesus. I will let Jesus be an influence, but I reserve the right to opt out of anything that I don't want to believe or I don't want to do. We have a lot of people in American Christianity that take this very mentality. Well, I don't agree with what the Bible says about fill in the blank. As if the Bible is a book of suggestions or the Bible is, is, is the best spiritual practices book that we should just maybe read and possibly follow. But if you're a Christian, I want you to look up here for a moment. If you give 99% to Jesus, if you commit 99% to Jesus, you are still 100% in control. Because you get to choose the 99% that you submit to him. And then you can change your terms and conditions whenever you want. Imagine what that would be like in a marriage. For those of you who are married, those of you who are single, and God has not brought you your lovely spouse, you can still praise the Lord for that because your spouse one day will be your greatest sanctification tool, okay? But imagine in a marriage for just a moment. Imagine you were committed to your marriage only 99% of the time. Like, imagine me walking up to my wife or my wife walking up to me and saying, I'm 99% committed to you, but there's going to be one time I'm always going to be unfaithful. What kind of trust could be built there? What kind of life? What kind of growth? What, nothing. It, it, there would always be this lingering in the back of your mind. Are they truly even committed to what we're doing here? And so church, we either give Jesus complete control or we have not given him control at all over our lives. And I'm here to tell you that's a daily battle. Amen? It is a daily battle to follow Jesus. It's a daily battle to lay our pride down and say, God, I surrender. I surrender all. And if that's not a daily battle for you, please come and find me after the service because I want to know what you're doing. The, the true gospel, the true following after Christ demands everything from you. Everything. Jesus said to, to take up your cross and, and follow me. We often forget that the cross was an instrument of torture in the most horrific of ways. It meant death to everything in your life. Jesus even took it a step further and he said the one who follows me has to hate his mother or her mother 
and your father and your brother and your sister and your spouse, even your own life. And you're like, but how did Jesus say that we are to hate? And not a literal hate. It's that you've put no limitations on God. And, and because of your commitment to God, everything else feels like hatred. Everything. Everything in your life feels like hatred except for that commitment to God. And Simon is here in the text and he's like, I want Jesus in my life, but I don't want to give you full control. I don't. And because he doesn't want to give full control is why we see the second warning here in the text. In Simon, we see a man who wants the spotlight to be on him and he's envious when it no longer is. Don't incriminate yourself this morning, but how many of you get excited when the spotlight's on you because you did something for Jesus? Right? We, we get excited when we share in the spotlight uh, that belongs to Jesus, and then we become devastated when it passes to somebody else. I remember uh, probably about five or six years ago, we we were walking through a really difficult season of, of life. And um, many of you know that uh, my wife and I were on the verge of separating and I was going to leave ministry. And God did something very radical in our marriage. But there was something I learned through this process. In my, in my situation, I felt like pain just continually be, was inflicted upon my life. Pain after pain after pain after pain after pain. And I didn't understand. I'm like, God, what is even going on? What in the world are you trying to teach me? Am I, am I prideful? Do, do, I need to, do I need to lay this down? Do I, what, what is it? Do I need to forgive somebody? Do I, uh, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't. And I remember sitting across the desk from a trusted friend and they knew the situation and said, Josh, stop for a minute. Stop talking. And I find that very difficult to do for those of you who know me. <laughs> I like to talk. And so I kind of just sat back in my seat. We're sitting at a Dunkin' Donuts. And he said, do you hear how many times you said me, my, and I in our conversation? And I was like, no, but who's keeping record of that? Like, <laughs> come on. That's not why I came here. <laughs> but it made me stop for a moment. And he said, Josh, everything's about your kingdom. My wife does this, and it makes me feel like this. And she said this, and it made me do this. I didn't like that she moved the chair over there because my chair has to be over here. I don't like this and I don't like, and it's, it was about me, 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 me. All of it was about me. And I began to realize that as Christians, we have to come to this place where thy kingdom come and my kingdom come are completely separated. And in fact, we have to be in a place where thy kingdom come is there and my kingdom come is not even a thing in our mind. That's exactly what the early church was like. That's what, that's what the follower, the devout, the devout follower of Christ, from the opening pages of this book to the very end, it was all about thy kingdom come. All about God's kingdom, not about my own. And every time I make it about myself, every time you make it uh, about yourself, we've come to this place where we say that we know better than God. And you're probably sitting there right now like I was when my buddy Jeff was sitting across from me and ever so graciously just said, Josh, stop. It's about you. It's about you. And every single time we make it about us, we react when we don't get the recognition. Every single time we make it about us, we take people for granted. Every single time we make it about us, 
we become angry and react when the spotlight moves off of us and onto somebody else. When we make it about us, we react when we think we have the grandest ideas and they don't get used. When we made it about us, we react when your idea does get used, but not by you, but somebody else. Simon in the text was a warning because he believed that the power of God came from Simon's ability to obtain it. He made it about himself. He thought that God's power existed so that the spotlight would be directed right on to Simon and not on God. He made it about himself. But what does the true gospel teach us? What does the Bible say to us about our gifts and our abilities about salvation? What does it say? We have been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of whom? Come on, people. Where does the gift of salvation come from? God. And why is it a gift of God? Why is it not of ourself? Because man shouldn't boast. God doesn't want man to boast. And so nothing that we have in this life, nothing, it cannot be purchased or obtained because of our status in in this life, in this world. No amount of education, no amount of wealth, no amount of materialistic good gives you access more to God than somebody else. Nothing It is a gift of God's grace so that you and I can't boast about something inside of us. You want to know why we can't boast? Because we have nothing to boast about. Our entire standing before God is a gift of God's grace. And any ability that you and I have, teaching, preaching, prayer, faith, administration, whatever, whatever it is, having the patience to serve with little blessings downstairs without duct taping them to the wall. <laughs> any gift that you have, any ability came as a gift of God's grace through the Holy Spirit into your life. And if you and I truly believe the gospel, we wouldn't want people's attention. We wouldn't. Because there's nothing in us that could save anyone else except Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ wasn't there, we couldn't save anybody. I was telling my wife this week that reading scripture, I'm like, the only good thing that I have going is Jesus Christ in my life. That's it. Not saying that I don't have blessings, but the only good in me is Jesus Christ. The only good... which really leads us to this place. And I love what one pastor says. He said, when you remember and recognize that the only good in you is Jesus, you become simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so in contrast to this text, we see Simon the magician, and then we see Simon Peter come onto the scene. And Simon Peter knows that his salvation and his powers are a gift of God's grace. Man, Peter had to learn that the hard way, didn't he? Do you guys remember back in the Gospels? How many times did Peter boast about his own strength? He's like, even if everybody else denies you, Lord, I won't. Do you guys remember that? And what, what happened? Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. Right? Well, wasn't it Peter that was arguing with Jesus about where he could sit in Jesus' kingdom? Which one of us is greater? Come on, is, is it me? Is, is it John? It's definitely, definitely not James. Uh, but but it's, it's got to be me, right? Like, I, I'm the oldest of the bunch, so I have to be the wisest, right? So you're going to give me a place at your right hand in your kingdom? That's Peter. 
And yet Peter experienced the, the very grace of God and the result of that grace is that every earthly thing was powerless to Peter. Everything earthly became, including Peter himself. How many of you in here know anything about the Protestant Reformation? Anything at all? All three of you. Great. History lesson. Church history lesson. The Protestant Reformation was a group of really four individuals, as we know the fathers of the Reformation, that helped the church come back and realize, recognize the error of their way and begin to follow the true gospel again. And this happened in the early 1500s, so the 16th century. And two of those individuals, two of those individuals, John Calvin, Martin Luther, you guys know Martin Luther, right? Like you, you recognize Martin Luther's name. He was the man that took 99 theses and he's, he's hammered them to the wall of the Catholic Church. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So these two men, these two men helped the church rediscover the gospel in the early 16th century. They were mightily used by God across Europe. Mightily used by God. And the main religious leader of their day and age was the Pope. Everyone followed the Catholic Church. Whatever the Catholic Church said, everyone that was a believer followed whatever the Pope did and said. And the Pope tried to shut these two men up. And he said in disgust in front of all people that he could reach that John Calvin and Martin Luther were heretics. And they derive all of their spiritual power Listen, they derive all of their spiritual power by their utter disregard for themselves. He said that in disgust, as though, as though that was going to be some, you know, like awful undercut, like spitting fire at these people. Like you guys, you derive all your power because you don't think of anything in you. It's all about other people. It's about God. And when you teach church and you preach and you live out the whole gospel, you begin to see radical transformation occur. And we see racial unification occur in cities and states and countries. And then at the same time, we also come across people who have a rootless faith. They're not true followers. And in the midst of that, in the midst of those things, the gospel still goes forward because God is unstoppable. Just like we were singing about. Just like we were singing about at the very beginning of worship, unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they will be done. Nothing shall be impossible. Nothing. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your praise forevermore. Jesus, our God, unstoppable. Our church should be a moving church, a going church. Because the church is to be a place of joy where people who are filled with joy are moving towards those whose lives are joyless. And so as I've asked you numerous times over the last seven or eight weeks, are you a part of the movement? Are you committed to the movement of, of the gospel? Because this is where we're going as a church. We're, we are a church that is ready to burst out of these, these walls and make an impact here in our community. And so are, are you a part of the movement? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning. And as we, as we wrap up our, our time 
together of worship. We, we come before you, Lord, with hearts that are humbled with, with deep, deep gratitude for the truth of the gospel that's, that's been revealed to us, that's impacted us and, and affected our lives, that's transformed us. Your word reminds us this morning, Lord, that our salvation is a gift of grace. And the reality for each and every single one of us is that we cannot achieve or earn that salvation because of our own efforts. And in light of that grace, Lord, I, I pray that we recognize our own insufficiency. That we admit it like, like Peter we have often boasted in our own strength and our own abilities only to find out that they are fleeting and that they're empty. So God, thank you for bringing, bringing us to the cross. Because at the cross we encounter the power of your grace and, and that humbles us and it reveals truth to us and, and it tells us who we are in your sight. And so, God, I, I pray that that same grace that transformed Peter is the same grace that empowers us. That it helps us to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and, and that worldly power and possessions lose the grip over their heart, our hearts and our lives. Give us the strength, Lord, to be servants of your word as, as we're unswayed by the allure of anything that the world has to offer, that our flesh wants and craves, that Satan would tempt us with, Lord. May we recognize that true power comes from the Holy Spirit. And when we recognize that, Lord, embolden us to share the gospel with the world that, are, that is around us, that is in desperate need of your redemption. Give us power to proclaim truth. Let us not do it just in word or just in deed, but in both, Lord, in word and deed. Even when we're faced with challenges and, and obstacles in our way. Hmm. I think in the... In this moment, the Holy Spirit is calling us to, to commit. To commit in this moment. Commit to the movement of God's grace and mercy. To surrender our pride and our desire for recognition. Our, our preoccupation with gain. And so I think the only appropriate way really to end is for each one of us to spend the last few moments that we have together fixing our gaze upon the cross. And I don't mean physically, I meant spiritually fixing our gaze uh, upon the cross because grace and mercy intersect with human brokenness in that one place. And it brings about our salvation and that salvation transforms each and every one of us. And so I'm going to call you right now to be alone with the Lord for the next two to three minutes. I know that seems like an eternity to some. And that you would take that time to just commit yourself to the movement of, of God here in and through our church.